Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Petr Klimisch. He's a head of a laboratory, Laboratory of Ecology and Evolution of Social Insects. And right now he's in the Czech Republic. And we're going to talk about his research on arboreal ant communities in New Guinea. So, Petr, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, tell me about your research and your fieldwork. Yeah, so my laboratory uh, focuses mostly on tropical ants, although we do also some research on ants in temperate zone as well. And uh, I have several colleagues, so the topics are quite broad. For my part, I'm interested mostly, as, as you said in introduction, in canopy ants. That means the ants which live in tropical trees, like in the tops, in the branches, and then in crowns of trees. But some of my colleagues, they do research also on biogeography on ants, so how species spread across the islands in Pacific in particular, and about their like uh, molecular and evolutionary history. And we okay. also do research like on interaction of ants with other animals, especially herbivores, insects, or birds, plants, and so on. Oh, let's start with that. What, what kind of animals do ants interact with and in what situations? Yeah, it's quite interesting topic because, uh, you know, ants are uh, social animals. They live in nests, in colonies. But unlike bees, which are pollinators, or wasps, which mostly predate, ants are, like, more diverse in interaction. So some are predators, so some are, like, omnivores, which means that they eat, like, all kind of food. And some are more, like, specialized to honeydew, like sugars or plants or exudates from nectaries and from flowers like nectar and honeydew from aphids uh, and in tropics they are like more diverse than in temperate zone because uh, some species are really specialized predators and some are really broad in diet so that's quite interesting question i'm also looking to differences between like ground ants and arboreal ants because uh, the ants which live in soil in the ground are mostly predators but those which are in trees are more interacting with the uh, Honeydew insects like aphids. Well, you know how um, anemones in the sea will let clownfish, you know, go between them, or sharks will allow some, you know, little fish to clean their teeth. Are there any examples of ants that other animals allow to crawl on them to eat stuff off of them, or are there any relationships like that? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's not uh, really like that, but uh, what is quite widespread in ants is kind of like a different relationship, like parasitism or, or like or some kind of symbiosis. So there are like a lot of cases where uh, the ants are interacting with each other, like between species. Like some species are like parasites of other ants that they like steal their larvae, or they are like slave-making ants. But there are also like uh, symbiotic relationships where two ants, like like two species, are going quite well together, and they are like actually kind of profitable from each other. Uh, but then you have also like a lot of ra- ranges of other 
uh, insects or arthropods, invertebrates, which also are a kind of in symbiotic or parasitic relationship with ants, like living in their nests, you know, and or stealing their food. And it really ranges from symbiosis, sometimes even to predation and to parasitism. Like a good example are, for example, caterpillars of blue-winged butterflies, uh, which uh, are quite like well known for this kind of relationship, where some caterpillars are just like uh, giving some honeydew, some nectars or attractants to ants, but some others they are actually brought to the nest and they start to eat the caterpillars, the larvae of ants, and they start to be like, uh, uh, you know, predators actually. Are there any where two kinds of ants or ants and another type of creature will literally share nest space? Or do they keep that, you know, no one's allowed into the nest unless it's, it's always a bad reason that another creature's in the nest. Like, is it ever, is the symbiosis ever strong enough where even in the nest environment, ants will hang out with other creatures? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Actually, one, one big part of my research in current is like looking how species coexist in tropical forests. Because what's really interesting and cool is that even in tropical forests where you have like really little species, like we documented something like over a hundred species of ants in trees just in a hectare. But what's interesting, like a lot of these species are rare and some are really super common. And sometimes these like species which are more rare can actually nest quite close by to this dominant, super dominant ants, but only some of them. And one of my colleague, he like documented the cases, like it's called actually parabiosis, where uh, the species are kind of uh, tolerating each other. And, and, and in some uh, cases, not, not in Papua New Guinea, but in Borneo, for example, there is a documented case where two unrelated species are even sharing nest space or they share the trails where they carry the food and so on. So it's a bit exceptional, but it can exist in tropics especially. Yeah, what's the most amazing relationship you've seen ants have with another creature? What was it? What, what was it like? I mean, like, I really admire this relationship, like, with this uh, uh, honeydew insects. Like, you know, in temperate zone, uh, you have aphids, and that's also fascinating, but it's kind of easy to spot. You just see ants which are climbing the plants, and they see the aphids, they protect them, and then they carry the honeydew back to the nest. But in the tropics, there is kind of like cryptic symbiosis, which I was really surprised to find how it's common in tropical canopies, which is with scale insects. Like scale insects are kind of fascinating insects related to aphids, but they look like uh, flat, non-moving uh, kind of uh, structures. You, you wouldn't even say that it's insect. And they live like either on the plant, on the bark, but in the system I worked in, I found out that most are actually living inside of hollow branches, and there are like colonies of ants, which are full of uh, the scale insects and larvae, and they live together, and scale insects actually provide them uh, sugars, and and it has been hypothesized that, that that's the reason why these canopy ants are so super dominant, so super common. They Their biomass is actually uh, higher than of the other insects in canopy of trees, and and this is because they are probably boosted by these honeydew and sugars provided by these cryptic uh, symbiosis inside of trees, which is quite fascinating. So, what does that mean? The ants will go onto certain plants or trees deliberately to get aphids onto them, and then take the aphids somewhere. Or, like, can you explain a little more detail of how it works? 
Yeah, it's actually not so well known how these uh, symbionts like distribute, but uh, but but you know it's it's quite um, like if, if is it really tight symbiosis, like either with aphids in the soil, like with some ants in temperate zone, like like Lazius genus. So uh, they are they are like clones, and they are even carried like uh, sometimes even with with queen. Like if is it really like strict symbiosis, there are known cases where queen. Which is flying off the nest to establish the new nest is actually carrying uh, the the young sibyl to with it. Uh, yeah, something similar uh, do also other ants in some America, which has, uh, has symbiosis with the fungi, and they also carry like a mycelium of fungi. Uh, and when they establish the colony, they can establish new garden of the fungi. And something similar was documented also with some aphids or scale insects. But it's in the cases of really tight symbiosis. If is it more commonly like some kind of facultative symbiosis, they just like, uh, you know, visit the aphids on plants and they just protect them and breed the colonies like externally outside of the nest. And in case of my system, we actually don't know how it works because these uh, branches are closed uh, and the scale insects are already there. So it's not really known how they are distributed. And there are a lot of species of ants which uh, Sometimes uh, uh, breed the same species of scale insects, sometimes different. So it's like a bit specialized, but not too much. So it's actually very unknown, I would say, in, in these canopies, how it works exactly. Well, when you do field study, do you hang out with ants? Or like, what, what do you do? What does a field study look like? Oh, yeah, it's quite uh, heavy work and kind of adventurous. So I, I joined uh, the group of, uh, of Professor Novotny, who established uh, a research station in Papua New Guinea, uh, uh, which is like east half of New Guinea Island, and, and it's a democratic country, which used to be Australian colony in 1960s. And uh, even though that it's like, uh, you know, democratic country with parliament and, and kind of like uh, uh, a good, like, uh, political system similar to Australia, it's still a rural country and most of the land is tropical rainforest and most of the people are still sustainable farmers. So uh, what uh, we did after establishment of this research station was actually that we started to work with the villagers and with local landowners because what's also exceptional in the country compared to other tropical countries is that uh, the people own the land. So actually, if you want to enter the forest, you have to really work with villagers. So it's kind of symbiosis with, uh, between, uh, you know, uh, researchers coming uh, from Europe and US uh, and working uh, with uh, local so-called uh, para-scientists, uh, like para-taxonomists, who are like trained assistants helping us with the research as uh, employees. And then the other people we work with are actually really like rural villagers who know the forest and who can allow us to access the forest and help us with the research, uh, usually for like profit that we employ them. And, and it's kind of interesting story because uh, it helps to protect also the forest because the long-term activity of researchers was successful in last like 20 years there to establish conservation areas uh, with the people and save quite a lot of forest before from logging, actually. So it's quite interesting. Well, I just spoke to a researcher today. I'm doing a series on ants and bees. Uh, the ant guy, he said that they're able to stick a, co a color-coded piece of tiny paper to the thorax of ants. 
and then using infrared or other spectroscopy, they can literally see them in their nests and watch them and follow them. Do you know if there's any way in the field of tagging ants that works for a period of time where you can, you know, follow their their activity and their motion and where they go? Oh, yeah. I have to say I don't have so much experience with this because, uh, you know, in our work in tropical forest, uh, we don't have so much time or so much tools to really observe, like, individual ants uh, or inside the nest. Like, our work is really kind of uh, basic in the sense that there is so little known that uh, when I started to do research, uh, rather than to do some, like, kind of uh, really advanced uh, technique, uh, like you described, we started with something uh, really simple, like we worked with villagers who are filling the forest, and we actually kind of dissected the forest with chainsaw and axes for, 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 the, for the first time, uh, which was just like a tiny piece of forest, and at the same time we protect and help protect the forest uh, in the surrounding, and by doing that we could actually for the first time to really see like how many species are there, where they nest, and what, what is their like basic ecology and relations, what are the rare species, common species, how they are aggressive. You can, of course, observe them live and how, how they are aggressive and so on. But to really, like, kind of peer inside of the nest, that's, that's quite so impossible in the moment in tropics. I guess very difficult. What's the most, the strangest or most amazing type of ant or situation you've seen? Oh, most amazing ants. Yeah, there are many. It's like, I think what's very fascinating about tropical ants is that they are so diverse in structure, like how they look like. Not only what they do, as I described, like from predators to like this omnivorous ants or honey eaters, but uh, but also how, how they look like. It's quite associated with their ecology. So, uh, you know, when, when you look at the ants, like here in Czech Republic or in temperate U.S., they are also fascinating creatures, but they look kind of similar. Like everybody can recognize what is the ant, and they might be kind of boring, unlike like butterflies or beetles to people who are not really like researchers or entomologists. But in tropics, they are so diverse. Like you can have species just in size. You know, you can have species in litter, like on the ground in leaf litter, which are just like one millimeter big and and they have like triangle-shaped heads with really uh, sharp, long mandibles, and they catch springtails or some really s- small insects in leaf litter who are like uh, really fastly moving. And uh, you can have also like ants like in Borneo in trees, like uh, and which is actually called like jigas, like uh, like a really big ant, which is so. Uh, like uh, three, four centimeters, and it's dimorphic. It has really big soldiers who are protecting the colony, and then smaller individuals who are like uh, more dealing uh, for the food for colony. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And uh, and they are like like really different. They have just like you no know, different heads, different mandibles, different food resources. They are really big, so. So it's quite fascinating how actually diverse in structure the ants in tropics are. So do you feel like you're just in the early stages of even finding these ant colonies and understanding the basics of them? Or are there any ants that you're doing advanced research on to really figure out, you know, the nuances of them? I uh, I actually just uh, obtained like a new project, like new uh, my proposal has been funded. So uh, we are looking forward 
uh, hopefully it will be possible when when situation about COVID will improve that we can travel next year in summer to Papua New Guinea and establishing projects. And because I know now quite a lot about these previously unknown communities, we already know what lives in forests and we map the ants, you know, we, we know how big territories they have and which species are common and which rare, as I described. What we aim like next to is actually look at a little bit too more detail to some interspecies interaction and biology, especially like we are interested to see if these ants could be used kind of like a model or uh, how you know, climate change and habitat change, forest change is like uh, influencing the communities. We plan to uh, put to the forest like a lot of artificial bamboo nests and let them occupy. And and then we plan even kind of translocate these nests uh, between different uh, forest types like, uh, you know, nice forest to plantation and back or between high elevation to low elevation, uh, which uh, we hope could be kind of interesting manipulative experiments to actually really work with live colonies and to see how they react to these uh, big changes today, which had never been actually done before in ants. So it's kind of uh, cool and a bit risky experiment maybe in the same time, but we hope to succeed. We already tested some some of these methods before and it looks that it could work. Could you, um, you know, in a tropical area, like take a small animal that had been killed and put it on the floor, you know, of the forest and, you know, put cameras on it and watch it over like 24 or 48 hours and see if ants come and what they do. Maybe you'd, uh, you know, maybe you could act as bait to lure out ants that you want to study. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, actually, uh, like this is kind of like a really side topic. There are not so many researchers in ants, I think, who are like working on something like that you described. But I, in a conference, I actually seen that some people in Japan, like, uh, they have some uh, special ant which is really active in carcasses of animals. Uh, and I have one colleague here who is studying something similar in, in temperate zone in Czech Republic. But, but mostly like, I mean, the ants are doing the job as well sometimes, but, but I think there are like other creatures, you know, like, like, uh, flies and some specialized beetles who are, I think like getting rid of the carcass like more effectively than ants. But in tropics, what, what we do, what we actually use, or what's common methods to actually monitor the ants in tropical forests and attract them is actually putting the tuna baits on trees and on the ground. It sounds a bit funny to, to likes because, uh, you know, it's just tuna bait from, from like can and, and you can put like a little bit tuna with oil and it's, terribly attractive to ants, so it's kind of standardized method if you want to see what are common ants in an unknown site. So you just put these tuna baits and you can observe how ants are coming to the meat and how they fight each other, what is their like kind of time succession in the baits, and it's quite useful method to observe some some behavior between ants as well. I don't know, what are you open to figure out about ants? Any big themes or you just exploring the the world of ants and seeing what's out there. Yeah, it's not that we would be just exploring randomly. We of course have some uh, scientific scheme. So, but our our main like interests is that we use ants as a model organism, like as a whole community, uh, to uh, to use them uh, to observe some changes in insect communities in reaction uh, to quite a hot topic today, like you know how 
insects, uh, here ants, are reacting, for example, to elevational changes and to climatic changes. So, uh, for the first time in Papua New Guinea, we explored all the ants on vegetation and on the ground along Mount Wilhelm, which is like the biggest mountain on the east of Ireland, like over 4,000 meters above sea level. And it's covered almost whole by a pristine rainforest, which is very unique today because most of these uh, big mountains and tropics are already damaged and they usually have in lowlands just plantations and secondary forests. But we had this unique opportunity to actually see how natural communities are changing in such a big like uh, mountain summit. And apart of these elevational changes before for my PhD thesis, I was in particular interested just in lowlands, how communities change from secondary forest which grows after 10 years where the forest has been felled and how the communities of ants differ from primary forest and and how invasive species you know we are also quite interested how invasive species which are not native in these forests so are spreading and what is their role and how they compare to native species which is quite also interesting so these are kind of like main topics we we, we studied in, in ants a part of canopies. And of the um, places that you've been to study ants, I don't know, are, are some places more conducive versus others? You know, like, is Papua New Guinea a great place to do it? Other places are kind of like, eh. Like, what, what makes a place, a good place to study ants, in your opinion? And why? Uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, Papua New Guinea is a fascinating place to study ants because uh, I was one of the really few people to actually starting to look at the ants in canopies and in trees. There has been no work. <laughs> Uh, well, I, and I started in 2007, so it's not so long ago. And only primary work there was by a famous biologist at uh, Wilson in 1960s. And since the time, really not much. So that was kind of surprising for me. And the country is fabulous for insect and plant research because there is so high endemism and high diversity uh, that it's just incredible. But at the same time, it's not easy to work there, really. Like... Uh, it's like really place difficult to get. It's one of the most expensive tropical countries, which which a lot of people actually don't know. So uh, it's not so easy to work there, and without working with local people, we couldn't do that. Uh, but I think it's kind of less interesting, but it's still somewhat interesting to study ants even just here in in Europe. Uh, it's just a bit more boring because a lot of stuff is already known. But recently I was starting just a small project with colleagues, uh, which I found also quite interesting that uh, there is uh, like a network of new reserves around Czech Republic uh, where they fenced the small areas of pastures and they breed there like wild cattle and bisons. And the idea is just to see how landscape, you know, plants and biota, insects and butterflies but also mammals are reacting actually to these grazing effects. And because I'm pretty much only one who is like doing this kind of research on ants, so in, in the country, I also joined the group and we started to monitor the ants in Czech Republic to see how they react to grazing. And, and it's kind of interesting because it quite varies between the sides and we are just like kind of beginning to, to delve to the idea, so you can do interesting questions certainly on on and ecology and biology even even in Europe still, but of course in tropics is much more interesting. So some other sites we studied uh, was also some research in in Borneo, 
in Malaysia and Borneo uh, were, were like really different communities from Papua New Guinea, but uh, we also studied ants in, in, in Panama and also in the Bright Zone, like we could project which compare canopy ants between Virginia forest actually in US and Czech Republic and Papua New Guinea in recent. Because one of the interesting questions is also how these communities differ between tropics towards the temperate zone uh, in trees and where they nest in trees and how they are diverse, abundant, and, and so on. Well, because, I mean, if you dig deep enough into the ground, the ground temperature is almost always the same. So are there any ants that live in colder climates? You said there's temperate ones, but do they tend to burrow into the ground more because of that? Oh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I mean, like... Uh, Ants are quite omnipresent. You just don't get them, you know, in in uh, Arctic zone and in Greenland. Otherwise, pretty much everywhere. But but it's true. If you go, uh, that's that's one of the interesting thing that if you go to temperate zone, uh, probably I think it's uh, because of winter time because the colonies cannot survive so easily through the winter. Uh, there are more ants which live just on the ground in the soil, but they don't build the colonies on trees so much. Uh, while in rainforests and tropics, uh, it seems uh, from our data and some other data from uh, Amazonia, for example, and Borneo, that uh, that about half of ants uh, species and probably also biomass is uh, is in trees and half is on the ground. So it's more like 50-50 and, and there is a high specialization got different ant species in canopies and different on the ground. While in temperate the proportion of species which really live in canopies is, is pretty low. There are some specialists, but not so much. But still, we were actually surprised once we were using this kind of invasive technique that we follow the loggers and we really dissect the trees in Virginia. Uh, we actually were surprised that we also find quite, quite some ants living in branches and in trees, which was uh, kind of supposed to be quite rare. But once you really like, you know, dissect piece of forest and you really look to these habitats, which nobody looked before, you found out that there are still quite a lot of ants too. But it's less than in tropics, of course. You know, I was, I was just about to ask you, and I laughed about ants migrating. They couldn't really migrate very far. But then I thought, I wonder if there's ants found, you know, multiple feet down or hundreds of feet down, like in mines and things like that. I wonder if ants would migrate downwards. Do you know if there's any ants that... I have no clue if anyone's seen this, but do you think that ants could live on the surface and then when it gets to be winter, they could migrate way down, you know, six feet down, 20 feet down, and hang out there to survive the winter and then come back up? Yeah, I think it's possible because, um, like, definitely, like, a lot of species are just uh, nesting on the ground, and once it's warmer, they start to climb up the plants. But, but there are also species... Which have like short-lived colonies, uh, you know, just in small twigs or even in some like you know small nut, you can have a colony and so on. And and those are like usually short-lived. So I guess the ants are surviving in the ground, uh, especially queens. And and then once the temperature is warmer during the summer, you can have like a lot of new small colonies which are coming even to the vegetation. Uh, while in tropics, I think the colonies are surviving more, like they can afford to survive multiple years because there is no winter. Once, one really interesting question in current is like reaction of ants to climate change. And, and that's like more like uh, moving uh, 
not like within locality, but but uh, people are more interested to to test some effects if the ants uh, as a as a species, like as the ranges, if they can kind of move, if is it uh, and if is it due to the climate. So there are different models and projections, and actually a lot of people who are studying climate change in insects, they also study ants because they are sensitive to temperature. But uh, the data so far are really like anecdotal. There are not so many experiments and a lot of this stuff is just on models. So we really don't know so much how these ants will react to climate change. What I found in my research and what was kind of difficult to publish and surprising, that we actually found out that the ants which live in canopies in uh, mountains are much less sensitive to uh, like to change of the forest, like even if the forest is young and not so nice and regrowed after felling, it uh, it got almost the same species and same diversity as as the primary forest, which is completely different what is known from lowlands, where usually uh, if you destroy the habitat, it has really dramatic effect on ants. We were quite surprised by this, but then I found out that we are just like a first or second study in the world doing this because all people study ants actually in lowlands and nobody really climbs uh, to the to the top of mountains to study ants in trees so i don't know how general is it but i suspect that actually the ants in mountain might be maybe less sensitive to changes than it's uh, assumed by ecological theory where actually a lot of people who are modeling say exactly the opposite that the species who are endemic to mountains they will not survive the climate change so so it's kind of interesting to see what will happen in future and because we still know actually quite few data, data points, not really so much on really observational data. Do you know if there's ants on mountains or like in caves? Are there ants that live in water somehow and can swim or right near water? Yeah, 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 surely. I mean, there are no ants which would be like literally living underwater, right? Like like in spiders, you have like this uh, sp- a few spider species who can like catch the bubbles of air and they can really like live well like underwater. So this is not really case of ants, but still uh, like there are some documented really interesting cases which you uh, I think can watch even like in you know Nature Geographic documentary. There are like few cases documented like that. So one is like. This uh, ant species, uh, which live in mangro- mangroves, you know, like near the sea, where where there is this big fluctuation of the of the of the sea level, and uh, these ants actually found a way how to like build their nest in the way that the, the 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 water is not easily coming in, and if it's coming in, they have like special like uh, structure of these chambers in the nest, how they can like move quickly a little bit up, so the the water is not affecting them. It's like one famous example. Another one are invasive species, like uh, the, there are a lot of studies on invasive uh, ants uh, called fire ants, Solenopsis invicta, which is actually very, very big pest species in US and also in Australia, New Zealand and so on. Uh, we don't have it in Papua New Guinea actually, but, but uh, or in Czech Republic, but in US it's really problematic species. And what has been shown that these ants are so good in swimming and in collaboration uh, with each other. So what they do is that if there is uh, some water, they can actually swim across the stream uh, by holding the legs of each other water. So all like workers are kind of like um, interconnected and they can float on the water as a, as a small uh, small vehicle or something, you know. And and. 
yeah, you can find even videos online about this, and it's quite interesting how some species can easily spread and uh, become to be invasive because of this ability. But it's not common, I think. Only some species can do that. What about in caves underground? Has anyone ever found ants or in mines? Yeah, I, I don't know, actually. In caves, I suspect in caves there will be not so many ants because... Um, there are some species of ants who are really blind and they don't need like really light. But those are species which live still like you know in forest or or in 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 some savannas, but they live uh, deep underground. But about caves, I don't hear, yeah, I don't recall some species which would be really cave specialists in ants. But there are definitely other insects. So, uh, especially some insects, you know, I think it's because. Uh, it's because that in cave, if it's a really deep cave, there is really lack of nutrients and you have not so much to eat on. So what these specialized insects do is that they can specialize on eating of uh, feces uh, from bats, for example, or they can specialize on on some uh, carcasses uh, uh, which are brought by, by the stream inside to the cave. But for ants, I think this is kind of difficult because they need to establish like a good colony and some nesting place and they need to raise the brood. So I think they might need more food and it's more difficult for them to live in such caves, caves I think. But I might be not really right. Maybe there are some specialized to caves in ants as well, but I am not really sure. Well, one time my dad used to work in New York City on like the 11th floor of a building. And I got Chinese food and I left it out. And we came back two hours later and there was like thousands of ants all over it. And I couldn't believe even in New York City, up in a, in a building that ants found it. So I, fi I figured like they're everywhere after that experience. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, I don't know which area you are based. It is a kind of warm, warm place, you know, like subtropical. Oh, kind now of I'm in area. Texas. Yeah, I'm in yeah, Austin, yeah, Texas so, now. Yeah, yeah, so sure. Like in such such area, like uh, you can get many species. I'm sure there are these fire ants. I just described uh, about this water floating ability. They they love like any biscuits and foods, and sometimes they enter the buildings. There are a lot of species of ants which can. Uh, really like survive in buildings and and they can be kind of like with human actually some colleagues in U us they even did research i don't know if it was it in new york or some another big city but they even did research like that they just uh, left the biscuits uh, in the offices and and did exactly what you described were looking what kind of ants they actually get if they put some biscuit baits uh, along, uh, in the buildings in big cities in the us and there was some scientific article about that, and it was quite interesting because you can see that it's not just one species, and some species are invasive, some not, and you can even document then by molecular technique how they spread across the U.S. or something like that. So it's quite interesting, and and in tropics it's also very common. Like uh, uh, even if you have air-conditioned lab uh, laboratory, like in New Guinea or in Borneo, uh, if you leave some food, <laughs> you can be sure that in like one, two hours, it will be just full of some ants. What is the uh, the sensory apparatus of ants? You know, like humans don't seem to be particularly great about any sense. You know, dogs are great at smelling. What what kind of senses do ants have? And which one is like their predominant sense? Yeah, good question. Like uh, ants, 
like you know the really predominant sense in ants is actually uh, chemical sense they communicate by pheromones and they have this uh, kind of specialized uh, cuticular carbons on their uh, skin on their cuticle uh, so they can smell if, if the other ant is not only the same species but they can smell if is it really nest made from the same colony and uh, a part of these chemical cues uh, and leaving some pheromone trails which actually help them to find the food because one ant can smell the food, finds the way, leave this tracking pheromone trail and then uh, the other can really easily find it. But there are also other communication uh, communication skills. Uh, one, one of them is of course antennas. You can sometimes see it's even in uh, uh, kids' movies that the ants are kind of... Uh, touching each other with antennas, right? And, and they use it as kind of like a communication and they exchange also these chemical cues once they touch each other by antennas. And then they also have this fascinating future, which is similar to bees, that they have this social stomach. So their stomach is actually divided to two parts. One is like bigger uh, part called crop. And then there is a small palm, like a, like a kind of a joint uh, to the other part of stomach is the smaller one which is actually the true stomach of the ant for his food. But uh, most of the food, the ant is keeping just in the social stomach, in the crop, in the front uh, stomach. And uh, it can actually like um, like vomit, actually, like the, the food to the other nestmates. So if some ant is hungry, it can share the food with the others. If it has like full crop, it can share the food with the other who are hungry, I mean. and And... Uh, by doing this, uh, it's believed that they also exchange the food quality and smell of the food, which also helps them to locate the resource. So there are like these multiple cues, like tactile, uh, chemical, and also like kind of stomach cues, I would say, uh, which they can use to actually locate the food and communicate about it. So ants, uh, again, sight is not a big sense for them. Hearing, I don't know, like... It, so how are their antennas used? You said chemosensing is very important, but what do their antennas do? Do they can they sense vibrations from the substrate that they're walking on? It's kind of a proxy for hearing, or what do they do? Yeah, yeah I think so. I, I think so. They they use the chemical communication and then tactile communication. So uh, especially, you know, a lot of ants are also covered by hairs. So they have different type of hairs on legs and also on the surface. And then also antennas and legs, and this is all like important to sense some vibration and and, and texture also where they are running and, and so on. So it's not like only chemicals, like like, uh, but they don't have uh, any like ability to really like uh, hear uh, the sound. I think as, as 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 mammals, for example. So this is kind of similar to other insects like spiders and 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 so on. Uh, but uh, but in some ants, you no. Know, but it's rather like minor part. Also, the eyes are very important. So, especially ants which are living on plants, so, or they are living in deserts in really dry areas where they have like little cues how to uh, orient your, uh, uh, themselves like in the landscape to find the way back to the nest. Uh, they use also eyes, and there are some experiments so, with some ants so, uh, living on trees or living in deserts. So. That, uh, that they can actually uh, use even the landmarks, they can memorize the landscape. And, and these ants are usually much more dependent on this uh, vision uh, communication uh, than on chemical communication. 
but it's more like the exception in terms of species number. Uh, but some ants can use eye, eyes also as, as important. There are some species where the eyes can cover most of the head actually. Some which look like you know like dragonfly, like really really ants with really big big eyes also. Have you looked at? Uh, I mean, have you sequenced ants in the lab, or have you looked at their microbiome? Do they tend to have an affinity for bacteria or for fungi because of where they are and they're you know they're next to the ground and next to plants and roots and dirt and things like that? Like, is anyone looking at their microbiome? Yeah, sure. Like microbiome is really hot hot topic today, and a lot of people do microbiome in insects. So there are definitely groups who do bacteria in ants. Like they are not doing this like in my lab, uh, but we use also molecular technique. But in our case, because we are uh, researching like this unknown build entropics, we mostly use like barcoding of few genes, and we are building like just uh, these four genetic trees, you know, just this tree of life to actually see how species are different from each other and how they evolve. So it's kind of like more basic question, basic technique. Uh, but definitely there are like people who are doing also microbiome in ants. And, and what's interesting, uh, what is probably most interesting discovery is, uh, again, quite related to canopy ants, actually, that there are some species, like a few groups of ants who live really in trees and in twigs. And some live also in symbiosis with plants. So I mean, like in acacia, where they really nest in the thorn of acacia and the plant is providing some special food bodies to the ants. And the, in these cases of uh, like plant mutualism, uh, like plant uh, symbiosis interactions, or some ants which are living inside of trees, it has been found that they have really special bacteria which co-evolve uh, with them. And it's also reason why some ants can eat just the honeydew from aphids, and just because it's really poor diet, really rich in sugars but it doesn't contain so many amino acids. And it has been shown that uh, some of these ants who have this special bacteria, uh, they can actually compensate amino acid uh, through these bacterias because bacteria give them some, some essential amino acids uh, uh, on this uh, sugar-poor diet. So it's really tight coevolution. And recently there was even an article on a uh, carpenter ant in, in science, I think, where some American researcher uh, show that that these uh, that these bacteria uh, of genus Blochmania they can even be transferred uh, through the egg in a germ cell. The, so the bacteria are really like kind of um, part of the ant. You know, it's like amazing symbiosis. Yeah, that's very cool. I guess last question here: Do you know any ants that live amongst the roots of plants, or do they stick to the leaves and the you know, the bark and the stems and stuff, or any of that hang out, you know, near the root nodules and stuff. Yeah, sure. Like, uh, that's, that's one, one thing which I was actually focusing in Papua New Guinea and this canopy ants was that I looked where the different ant species are nesting and it's very diverse. So you can have species who are really kind of specialized to nesting in epiphytes. So that looks probably close as what you described, uh, that the ant is living in the soil and in the roots or uh, under the epiphyte. So there's usually some, you know, some fern, for example, uh, living on the tree and it has a lot of roots with a lot of soils and the, the lot of ants are actually using this as a microhabitat and they literally are just uh, nesting and living, uh, having small nests just inside of these uh, rooty, rooty soil. Uh, but then there are other species who are specialized more to nesting to twigs 
nesting in bamboo stems or some ants in tropics they are kind of similar to wasps in the sense that they build own uh, paper cartoon nest on leaves and on the bark so it's quite uh, diver, diver, uh, divergent or diverse and what i was looking at was that that i found out that some species are not opportunistic not only in diet but some can be really opportunistic in nesting so there was one species in new guinea which was quite widespread and it can nest anywhere so it can nest in these rooty soil in twigs or uh, in cartoon nests you know in some special uh, epiphytes even inside of them and it didn't really care but then there are some other species who are like strictly specialized specialized and that's one of the reason how probably these ants can coexist in a piece of tropical rainforest because they utilize different nesting resources. Well, very good. That's right. I've asked you like 8 million questions about every area of ants and you handled it well. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? I want to, first I want to tell people I haven't mentioned it before, but the English way of saying your name is Peter Climes, P-E-T-R-K-L-I-M-E-S. And I'm trying to say it the right way, you know, Peter Klimes. Um, so when people hear on the podcast, just so they can find you, I wanted to make it easier. But how can they, uh, how can they find you and your work? Where can they go? So I'm managing actually our lab webpage, which is just uh, quite easy to find because it's, it's called antscience.com. Uh, and this antscience is like together like a single word. So if you type uh, antscience.com, you find the page about my laboratory and all the people involved. and we put there, you know, like papers we published and people who work there and some photos and so on. And we are also running some, some web page of photos of New Guinea ants, which is uh, called, it's like New Guinea ants, uh, dot, uh, org, org. Again, the New Guinea ants is like together, like a single word. So in these two web pages, they can find actually quite a lot of, not only about me, but about like our work. Very good. Well, Petru, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, not at all. I, I'm yeah, I'm really happy to give interview and thank you for your interest in our research. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.